friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have our friend Tom Wright back on the podcast. He's got a new book entitled Into the Heart of Romans. It's uh, it's an entire book about one chapter, which is pretty special. Um, so actually, what might be uh, a good move is if you could pause and like listen to the book of uh Romans chapter 8. Uh, I don't know if you have a Bible in front of you. Um, I don't usually say open your Bibles when we start a podcast, but uh, this one, it, like there probably is a value add to just do that for um, an awareness of some of the things that we'll actually get into. Um, we, we do more than just like a, a running biblical commentary. There's some really great stuff about um, heaven and hell uh, the nation state of Israel. Uh, I'd mentioned on a podcast with Todd Dethridge that I would have uh, Tom talk about that when I was uh, going to interview him and uh, came up in this conversation. So I was glad to hear that. And uh, I even asked him at the very end about aliens. And I, you know, I wasn't ready. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how I feel about asking the most prominent living theologian about aliens. But alas, I did, and uh, there you go. So uh, here's a conversation with Tom Wright. The book is Into the Heart of Romans, and here it is. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor to be joined again by our friend, the former bishop, Dr. N.T. Wright. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right, thank you. Outstanding. Now, today that we're recording on, it's Halloween and uh, I woke up this morning, one of my daughters came out and said, Dad, happy Halloween. Uh, I don't know if it's like a happy Halloween kind of thing, but, uh, you know, w- what is Halloween like for you? Oh, it doesn't mean very much here. There are a couple of houses in the street where we currently live in Oxford that have put out um, pumpkins. And I suspect that this evening they will be putting little nightlights in them and making them glow. And there will be odd parties and so on going around. But um Halloween in the UK isn't anything like what it is in America, for which I'm profoundly grateful. And Halloween in our household <laughs> is very low key by comparison with much of the rest of the UK. So it's, mm. it's, it's not, not a big deal. Um, not a big deal. OK, so all that to say, you don't have a costume. You're not getting dressed up tonight. Happily, no. I mean, I have several <laughs> I have several costumes, but they're mostly ecclesiastical and they would look very strange if I were to parade around the streets of Oxford in them. Mm. Yeah, I mean that that in itself might be a great costume. Do you, do you keep your uh, you know your fancy academic regalia hanging on the back of your door in your office? Because that's what um, my dad did as a professor. Well, uh, yeah, I, they're just over there. But what you can mostly see is a black gown, which is fairly boring. And underneath that, it's got various uh, other bits and pieces. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, if you change your mind, I feel like that that would be a great costume to consider if <laughs> if the situation arises tonight. Now, I, I know you just got back from New York not too long ago, yeah. and I know that you met uh, our now mutual friend, Annie F. Downs. Yes. And she was very excited to talk with you. <laughs> it was good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, there was, I think I said to you, I was a little startled that she hadn't yet read Surprised by Hope. I thought all my American friends had read it, but uh, mm-hmm. I gather she's reading it now. <laughs> She literally texted me a screenshot of her. She was on a plane right yeah. after she talked with you and she had it on her Kindle and she goes, please Great. tell Tom that I am reading it right now. Good. Uh, yes. So you, do you just assume most American readers have read that um, book? Well, it's just, 
I get more messages, phone calls, emails, people stopping me in the street to talk about Surprised by Hope than all my other books put together. Um, really? And just um, two days ago, hang on, it's Tuesday, isn't it? Two, two days ago, my wife and I were in Cambridge visiting our oldest grandson who's just started um, as an undergrad there. And after the morning service in chapel, we went and had breakfast with some of the other students. And one of them was an American who sat down at the table and said, Dr. Wright, so good to meet you. I read Surprised by Hope. And you know, I just thought, okay, this is what people do. <laughs> mm. So uh, it, it produced some interesting conversation. I think in America, it's much more well-known than in Britain, partly because there aren't so many people in Britain who read that sort of book, but also because many in America are still fixated on heaven and hell. And to be told mm -hmm. that there's a different way of looking at Christianity than the heaven and hell paradigm um, is, is a, a shock and a re relief, I think, to many. Whereas we don't have quite that, um, that uh, grit in our oyster, as it were. The grit in the oyster. Do you think part of that is because of the popularity of some of the like left behind uh, uh, type of books and the way that that captured the imagination of many Americans? Certainly the left behind thing is responsible for a lot, but that was coming in on the tide of a much larger stream of American dispensationalism, which, as you know, mm -hmm. goes back to the 19th century, came from Ireland to England and to America. And what had started off being the religion of a very small minority. And and it, it was self-consciously, it was, there's just a few of us left and we're going to be raptured and the rest of the world is going to hell. It's now become the religion of a vast number uh, in America, nowhere else in the world. Um, and that that's strange in itself. Um, but then also I found that, of course, a lot of people who were brought up traditional Roman Catholic were very much brought up on heaven and hell, that they were taught in school or by a nun somewhere, or certainly by their priest, that if you do this and this and this, you'll go to heaven. If you do that and that and that, you're going to hell. And they're kind of held between those options. And to be told, no, that's not how the Bible story works, is it can be really liberating. So it's fundamentalist fundamentalists and fundamentalist Catholics, likewise, are kind of, that's their backdrop. And to be given a different paradigm, I think, has been really helpful for them. When you talk about how helpful that has been when they go from heaven and hell to the idea of the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, uh, the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven, uh, instead of that old model, but what is a more biblical understanding of it, what do you think is most helpful, alleviating, life-giving to so many of us who found that through uh, the book, which I think is literally right over my shoulder right there, Surprised by Hope? Um, what, do you, what do you think that is? I think... I mean, I often now make the point quite simply by saying that there's a strap line at the end of the Bible, which is about the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth rather than people going up from earth to heaven. And the strap line isn't the dwelling of humans is with God. It's the dwelling of God is with humans. And, and that changes everything, actually. And it takes you to passages, well-known passages like John chapter one, which is regularly read at Christmas carol services, which climaxes in the word became flesh and dwelt with us and we gazed upon his glory. It isn't that how do we go to heaven in the hope that we might gaze upon God's glory there. God brought himself down to earth and revealed his glory surprisingly in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And, and once people see that that's the direction of travel, as it were, then, as I say, everything changes, everything feels different. And, and the world becomes hopeful that God has loved this world and has come to rescue it and redeem it and wants us to be part of that 
uh, ongoing operation. And that too is news to many people, not least to many um, many ordinary evangelicals who are told that there's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves, so we just have to be totally passive. And to be told, no, in Revelation 5, it says that under the blood of the lamb who is also the lion, uh, God has rescued people so that they can be the royal priesthood and can share God's task of running his new creation. Um, most Christians, in my experience, have never been told that. And, and, and it goes on and on and on from there with the sense of responsibility and vocation and all those neat things which actually are very li life-giving to ordinary people who didn't know God cared about them that much. Yeah, the, the renewed understanding of being an image bearer is that there is a vocation, a calling that is the uh, the fruit of what God has created inside Absolutely. of you. And that, yeah, and so that's playing out. And like you said, everything else opens up as well. One of the things yep. that most stands out to me is this understanding of the temple, that the temple, yes. instead of, okay, we just had this temple in the Old Testament and, you know, it, it's it's gone, everything's great. But no, it was a beachhead. It was a foreshadowing of yes. God's place on earth. And eventually in the New Jerusalem, God is there. That, that that is that is such a wonderful insight, and I'm so grateful to those scholars who've worked hard at that. I mean, I think of Greg Beale's book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, and I think of John Walton's work on Genesis about the creation as a temple and then the tabernacle and the Jerusalem temple as foretastes of the new creation. Those were some of the books that opened my eyes to it, but there's lots of others as well. And that's been something that's really emerged in biblical scholarship over the last 20 years. And I'm really grateful to those who've laid all that out and enabled people like me to come in, pick it up and say, guess what? It's there in Paul as well. And here's mm. how it affects the argument. Yeah. So it's, it's there in Paul. It's in Isaiah. The psalmist oh, yeah. gives us some stuff. So there, it's, it's a, th a thread line that's there the whole time. Yep. But in some ways we've, we've missed it because some we Western, especially uh, Americans, because of our view on dispensational and the end times and our eschatology, we've missed some of this stuff. But yep. we've also yep. um, created some um, peculiar assumptions about the nation state of Israel, which we, we feel that very prevalently right now. Yeah, that, yeah that's, that's really... I mean, there's an oddity there because I think the reason that many Protestant scholars avoided the theme of the temple was that it was too churchy, too sort of high church, but also, I'm afraid, too Jewish. Um, and there was a sort of sense that Jews believe in works righteousness, so we don't go there, etc., etc., etc. But then the sort of equal and opposite of that is that within some branches of dispensationalism, there's a sense that the nation of Israel, refounded by the Declaration of the United Nations in 1947, you know, what theological significance the United Nations have isn't entirely clear to me, but that that somehow is the great eschatological moment spoken of in Scripture, and, and so therefore we've got to support the state of Israel come what may. And that, it seems to me, has led us into some very blind alleys and uh, some very dangerous places. And I think we're seeing that playing out right now. I mean, it's hard to comment on the present extremely complicated situation uh, with so much folly and wickedness and violence and sin and death in all directions. I mean, all directions. Um, but I think we have not helped ourselves theologically by failing to read the biblical narrative the way in which the Bible itself lays it out. Mm -hmm. If someone's never heard another way of interpreting uh, 
Israel, the new creation, what what the connection to all that is, if you could give them a thumbnail for how to like begin the journey of trying to understand what that means when Paul well, talks about Well, well, well. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ways in and ways through, but one for me is just as the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and then the temple, are small working models of new creation. So God promises Abraham the land, not as simply that's that's how it's going to be forever and ever, but as the beginning, the foretaste of his intention to give Abraham and his family the whole world. And you see this very clearly in the, in the letter to the Romans, Romans 4.13. Paul says God's promise to Abraham that he should inherit the world. Da, 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 dum. And then when you get through to Romans 8, you get the theme of the inheritance, where the inheritance is not going to heaven and is not one strip of territory in the Middle East. The inheritance is the entire new creation. And you see that once you've seen that theme, you'll never unsee it again because it's, in fact, all over the place. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, for they will inherit the earth. And that's the aim of the whole gospel is that Jesus' followers are the people through whom God is establishing his strange, generous loving sovereignty on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the, that, that's the long fruit of God's promises to Abraham. And the thought that you might say, no, no, let's not go there. Let's pull back and say it's just this piece of land um, and it only belongs to Jewish people. Um, that is to deny some of the most basic things in the New Testament. And this is very difficult to say because in the present climate, of course, Everyone is hypersensitive. Everyone's got sore toes waiting for people to step on them. And whatever you say, somebody will accuse you of either being anti-Jewish or something. And, you know, for myself, I've spent my entire career trying to understand the first century Jewish world and trying to understand the New Testament within that first century Jewish world. And it's there that you find the idea of messiahship. And with messiahship, the great passage is Psalm 2, where God says to David, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the world for your possession. So through the Davidic Messiah, the promises to Abraham get universalized. And it's interesting that the New Testament picks up Psalm 2 as precisely one of the key grids for seeing the narrative that's now worked out through Jesus and the Spirit. Now, that's about as briefly as I can do it. I'm sorry, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a hasty summary, but, but I think that's where mm -hmm. I want to go. Well, first of all, asking uh, a preacher, an academic to say something briefly is a redoubtable task. And for you to do that in under 10 minutes was great. I think you did it in three minutes. So that's impressive in itself. Uh, but I think it, it, it helps give us a picture. And I think yeah. the idea that you've articulated already is that this reading of... Uh, you know, Revelation 21 of Romans 8, which are, you know, the, the texts that we're going to be continuing to discuss today, like all these things, like it, it, it opens up what was before just kind of this op opaque, confusing thing. Um, you write in this book that um, it's kind of like a city that we haven't explored a whole lot, that it's a city that, okay, I've, I've driven through, I've had a taxi and Uber get me from here to there. But once you start to explore the rest of the city, that, that Romans 8, this beautiful text that, that in some ways like is a climax that holds this whole book together, which gives us pictures for how to understand the entire Bible, is this beautiful city to explore. 
um, as, as you're wanting people to explore this text, which comes from a lifetime's work on the book of Romans, which obviously you love uh, effusively, as we're starting to read this, we hear these themes, the new heavens, new earth, inheritance, law is in there. Um, one of the things that you said before was sometimes we want to distance ourselves from Judaism because we think of it as works-based, that it's a religion like that. Uh, Romans 8 obviously starts with discussion about the law. You've helped articulate and uh, communicate in a popular way many of the assumptions that Judaism is not like this uh, anti-grace, that there's no forgiveness, but actually that there is love there in the beginning. And so when Paul talks about the law and the works— Give us a thumbnail for how we should start to think about that. Yeah, well, when Paul is talking about the law, the Greek word is nomos, but he regularly uses that word nomos to refer to Torah, to the five books of Moses. For Paul, as a first century Pharisee, a rabbi, the five books of Moses are not just a list of what we might call ethical rules, do this and don't do that. It's an entire narrative from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way to Deuteronomy. And we can see from other Jewish writings of roughly Paul's period how people are reading that whole story. And it's about creation. It's about the call of Israel. It's about the call of Israel to be the tabernacle-bearing people. It's about how they cope with that, how they are then led through the wilderness to their promised land, and then how, disturbingly, In Deuteronomy, when they're on the throes of getting into the promised land, God has some warnings for them that watch out because I know that you're still a stiff-necked people and you're not going to get it right. And if you disobey my covenant, then you will end up going into exile. And Deuteronomy ends with that pretty severe warning. But that is Torah. It's this narrative. And Torah then looks ahead. And we can see writers in Paul's day and slightly earlier, like the book of Daniel, riffing off Deuteronomy and saying, now, where are we in relation to this great narrative? And the Jewish historian Josephus, who's a younger contemporary of Paul, he talks about the end of Deuteronomy um, being, as it were, a prophecy of events going right on into his own day. And so when Paul is regularly quoting Deuteronomy as well, this is really where he's coming from. So in Romans 7, he talks about the law as a problem, that Israel, Paul himself as a good Jew, delights in the law of God inwardly. He reads it and he knows this is God's word and God's will, but he can't can't get there. He can't attain it. And he says, ultimately, it's sending me into captivity. And the word he uses for sending me into captivity at the end of Romans 7, um, Romans 7 verse 23, uh, is the word which is regularly used in the Greek Old Testament for exile. So he's tracking with the narrative right to the end of Deuteronomy and saying, now what's happened? And of course, the answer to what's going to happen next is the coming of the Messiah. So the Messiah has come. And so what God intended to do through the giving of the law, few is at last fulfilled because the law said, do this and you will live. And Paul is saying, well, I I was wanting to do it and I I couldn't do it. We Jews couldn't do it. We Israel couldn't do it. 
But now, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. We learn to live in the Spirit. We are the people in whom God himself comes to live by the Spirit. Paul uses temple language about the Spirit in Romans 8, verses 9, 10, and 11. So that his summary at the beginning of that chapter, which is very dense, uh, all comes rushing together. The law of the Spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Wow, Paul, that's quite a mouthful. Well, yes, it is, but let it play out. See how it works. That what God intended to do in the giving of the law is now accomplished in the Messiah's dying for sinners and in the gift of the Spirit. So the life-giving Spirit is the answer. The law wanted to give life but couldn't because it was weak through the sinful humanity that was common to all humans. Uh, But now by the Spirit, God is giving the life that the law couldn't. So the law looks on and says, yes, that's what I wanted to do. And so many Christians have thought that the law was a bad thing, which was simply condemning them. And Paul says, no, the law was God's law. It was holy and just and good. And it is fulfilled in Messiah and Spirit supremely in the resurrection, in the new creation, and in the inheritance when God's people raised from the dead will inherit the role of being God's stewards over his new creation. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll get to inheritance in just a second. Uh, Let me read uh, verse three from, this is actually your translation of Romans eight. What is, I always call it the, N.T. Wright Bible, uh, the, ta- the Kingdom New Testament. That's yeah. what uh, Which, translations By the way, as you probably know, it's, it's come out in, in a new, uh, a, a third edition, the New Testament for everyone. This, wow. this, is, um, this is from Zondervan um, and SPCK, and uh, uh, I've revised a certain amount of it, uh, lots of little tweaks here and there, and it's coming out at the same time as that, the book on Romans. Okay, well... Do you want to read verse 3 from your new well, translation, or do you want me I, to read it from... I, I suspect it's identical. I haven't checked recently. Um, let me just have a look. <laughs> um, here we are. For some reason, this book falls open automatically in Romans. I can't think why that oh, would that, be. That's, that's kind of fitting. And so to be honest, says, my trans... Okay. Here it says, For God has done what the law, being weak because of human flesh, was incapable of doing. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, and right there in the flesh, he condemned sin. I think that's probably the same as what you got. That's exactly, that's yeah, exactly yeah, the yeah. same. Yeah. Okay, so when we think of law, we're not thinking legalistic code. Okay, God was unforgiving. There's no grace. There's no love in the Old Testament. The laws, the Jews didn't talk like that about the law. Psalm, one, sure. Psalm 119, 176 verses about how wonderful the law is. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. That's what Paul is doing here. Yeah. The law, you know, God wasn't hateful in the Old Testament and loving in the New Testament. That's not the story here. Sure. But sure. the law is this narrative of God's redemption. And it says that Jesus came as uh, a sin offering. How would you want to describe what a sin offering is for those of us who aren't familiar with first century, first century Judaism? Yeah, the, the, the phrase sin offering refers to one particular sacrifice which is offered according to the books of Leviticus and Numbers. And it's a very interesting one because uh, if somebody sins knowingly and deliberately, if they say, I know that God has forbidden that, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, then you do not get forgiven for that in the Old Testament. That is called sinning with a high hand, just going ahead and doing it. And there is Mm -hmm. no offering for that. That person is going to be an 
unless somebody intervenes, is going to be cut off from among their people. In other words, they're, they're put out of the, of the company of Israel. The sin offering is there for two things. One, sins of ignorance, and two, sins of unwillingness. That is ignorance. I didn't know that was wrong. Um, so, sorry, I did it. Um, okay, here's the sin offering. Or, I knew it was wrong, but I had no intention of doing it. It just, it just happened that way, and I, I didn't intend it. Now, when you look at the description of the person in Romans 7, you see that they fall into both those categories, that uh, the evil that I would not is what I do. I do not know my own actions. Paul is describing the plight of the Jew under Torah as somebody who is sinning unwillingly and unwittingly. And if you take that problem to a well-trained rabbi, they'll say, what you need is the sin offering. And Paul says, mm -hmm. That's what God has provided. Now, there's more to it than that, but that's the heart of it, I think, the sin offering. Bit. Yeah. One of my Baptist friends explained it to me, the difference of sins of omission and commission, where it's a sin of omitting. Like, how, how are you feeling about that? I yeah, see it in your face some concern. That's a slightly different distinction. Um Sins of omission, when you should have done something and don't do it, and commission, yeah. when you shouldn't have done something and you do do it. But here, when it's un unwitting, in other words, I didn't yeah. know that was wrong. It's like when mm -hmm. you break the speed limit because you hadn't seen the sign or the sign was obscured by a tree or something. You say to the officer, sure, sure. sorry, I'm still going at 40, but I go and have a look. You can't see the sign. Um, so that mm -hmm. is um, un un unwitting. I didn't know it. Um, yeah. Or then, if somebody kicked your foot onto the pedal so that it, you went faster, I did not intend to do that. That was a complete mm -hmm. accident. And I, I didn't have what the lawyers call mens rea, a guilty mind in doing it. Mm -hmm. Those are the two uh, Levitical conditions. Gotcha. And so the law, now people understand, Paul understands that I, unwittingly I couldn't, I couldn't do what the, the story of what God was doing needed me to be, that I was called to be, I was created to be. I, I couldn't do that. But because of the spirit, I have the ability to, to, to live differently. Yeah. Uh, I want to read verse six from your translation. Yeah. Focus the mind on the flesh and you'll die, but focus it on the spirit and you'll have life and peace. Uh, you translate a different, uh, this is the NRS on that, to set the mind on this flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's the same idea, focusing, setting the mind. Yeah. It's almost as if there's like two roads in front of us, which seems to be a common Jewish concept. You, you no. can pick either road. You can't pick where the destination goes, but you pick which road you want to be on, and that will get yeah. you the destination. Yeah. This yeah. idea of setting our mind on the spirit instead of this flesh. If you're trying to like explain this concept of, of spirit living to someone uh, who's new to faith. How would you describe what that is? Wow. Wow. There's several points to make, and let me do it as briefly as I can. The distinction of spirit and flesh first. Many people assume in our world basically a platonic understanding where spirit is sort of abstract and flesh means solid stuff, um, and then they slide from that into thinking that spirit means having holy thoughts about God and flesh means doing things with your body or to your body, which yeah. you know you shouldn't do, whatever it might be, whether it's gluttony or sex or whatever. Um, th that overlaps with what Paul is saying, but it really doesn't get to the heart of it. If you look at spirit and flesh in Galatians 5, where you have the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, 
most of the works of the flesh are things which could be practiced by what we would call a disembodied spirit, such as jealousy and malice and evil intention and spite and all those things. Those are works of the flesh, even though you might think you don't actually have to have a body to do them, if you see what I mean. But Mm -hmm. for Paul, the spirit is the spirit of the life, God, the life giver, uh, the the, the creator who has given life to the world and breathes into our nostrils the breath of life so that we can be genuinely human. And the spirit is the one who is leading us to a genuine humanness. And for Paul, flesh is more about being turned in on oneself, finding one's own wants, whatever they may be, which Mm -hmm. might well be for forbidden physical fruit, or it might easily be for forbidden what we would call mental or emotional fruit or something which might have nothing to do with the body. So we've got to strip away the ideas of spirit and flesh that we come with and try to inhabit the antithesis that Paul has. I mean, one helpful way would be to go to Galatians 5 and look at the list. Here are the works Mm -hmm. of the flesh, here are the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The works of the flesh are all those things like jealousy and malice and evil intention, as well as gluttony and fornication and so on. But then if you go to Romans 12, the wonderful passage where he talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can think through and put into practice what God's will is. So that the phrase here, which, as you see in the different translations, it's quite difficult to render, the phronima sakos and the phronima tupneumatos, you could translate it the mindset of the flesh or the mindset of the spirit. I wish there were better translations available to us, to us than flesh and spirit, but really we don't have good English terms which are unambiguous in conveying what Paul Paul is intending there. And actually, for Paul, the words he uses for flesh and spirit are quite polyvalent as well. So he had to explain as he went along. And so it's no surprise if we do too. But so it's, it's the basic thing is getting the thinking right, getting to think in tune with God, the creator who is now recreating the world and us as part of the world, and learning to think that way and claiming the power and presence of the Spirit to enable us to think that way, and therefore to reject the pathways that we all too easily drift off into if left to our own devices. Again, sorry, mm. it's a bit long and a bit crunched together, but that's as quick as I can do it. Oh, you're doing great. You're doing great. So there is a mindset that leads to death, and there is a mindset that leads to life yeah. and peace. And the mind that leads to death is like this curved in, I think it was Augustine who talked, uh, I think the Latin phrase was incurvatus se. I'm not sure incurvatus if I'm pronouncing it. yes. In, in, homo incurvatus in se, humans turned in on themselves. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Which is the, the end result of, of sin, of, of the mindset yeah. that leads to death. Whereas the posture of Jesus, this open arm posture, this cruciform posture towards the world leads to, to life and to peace. And in the same way that for the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, like Paul here says, life and peace, like that's the result of the spirit. Yeah, yeah, correct. 
And so the end result of this spirit work is that we become the first fruits of what God is doing in this new creation. And the end result is inheritance. You talked about that before. Um, Sometimes we've thought of inheritance like, okay, disembodied spirit, disembodied soul floats up to heaven. We're on a cloud. We're playing harps all day. We're doing the heaven thing. Um, But this picture of inheritance isn't just a disembodied soul. And it's not just one little part of land in the Middle East. It's the redemption of all things. And that's what glorification looks like. That, that, that's, that's pretty much exactly right. And we'll come to glory and glorification in, in, in just a moment, perhaps. But, but yes, um, the problem here has been that the Western tradition of heaven as the destination of the Christian and heaven being a place other than earth and, and sort of spiritually speaking, miles and miles away from earth, so that you've got a long journey to get from A to B, um, that is simply not a biblical concept. In the Bible, heaven and earth are the two twin halves of God's good creation, and they are made for one another. They are made ultimately to belong intimately with one another. That's what and why they are. And so um, it's interesting that in Romans the word for soul doesn't occur, and the word for heaven only occurs twice in Romans, and in neither case does it refer to the destination of the Christian. We have imported this from medieval, I would say, corruptions of the biblical faith, where the inheritance, as you say, and as we said before, is the whole renewed creation. So the climax of Romans 8, 1 to 11 is the resurrection. If the spirit dwells in you, and that's temple language, then the one who raised Jesus from the dead will dwell and dwells in you is now going to raise you from the dead as well. But the purpose of that, and this opens up to the whole central section of Romans 8, verses 12 to 30, is that God is going to do this new creation. And you are to be the small working model of that new creation already in the middle of the old world. And that's the tension of of so much of Romans 8, is we are to be the working models of new creation and to be part of God's purpose for bringing that new creation about, to making it happen, even in the present, even though that's tense and difficult and groaning and so on. And so we're looking ahead, but not looking ahead to leaving this world and going somewhere else, looking ahead to God redeeming his whole creation and putting us in the best sense, in charge of it, recognizing that the idea of being in charge of something has been radically revised in the light of Jesus' sovereignty reigning from the cross. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, Revelation 21 where it talks about uh, we are now like... uh, a royal uh, kings and priests that we will like reign on earth, right? Is that the royal priesthood? Well, that that comes several times in Revelation one, in Revelation five, in Revelation twenty, one or two other places. In First Peter two as well. The idea, of course, yeah. goes back to Exodus nineteen, where it's what God says to Israel: "You are to be the royal priesthood, the holy nation." But then mm. it's picked up in the New Testament. This is about image bearing. The the the, yeah. the image. You know, you probably Luke heard me say this before. In the image of God in humans is like an angled mirror reflecting God into the world and reflecting the world back to God. That is the kingly bit, God's sovereignty in the world. This is the priestly bit reflecting the praises of the world back to God. And in Reve- my favorite bit on that is Revelation 5. We are redeemed mm-hmm. by the blood of the Lamb, rescued from sin, not in order to lie back and do nothing forever, but in order to share God's work in his new creation. Mm -hmm. Can you define what the word glorification looks like? (laughs) Okay, okay. Two things going on here. And I have to say, 
I, I promised myself when I was coming on air with you, I would hold this up. One of my former PhD students, um, one of whom, as with all my PhD students, I'm very proud, but this is a special book. Um, Haley Goranson Jacob conformed to the image of his son. This is a okay. study in Romans 8. And Haley Jacob uh, picked up from the fact that in uh, Psalm 8, it says that humans are made little lower than the angels, but to be crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under their feet. Now, I and mm -hmm. many others had drawn attention to the way that Paul uses that psalm in First Corinthians, in Philippians, in a variety of passages. But she pointed out that Paul has woven it into Romans 8, 18 following as well, in a way which says that even this present mode of suffering and groaning and prayer, this is part of the paradox of being glorified in the present, of being already shaped according to the pattern of the Messiah, conformed according to the image of the Son. Now, um, so, the, but there's two things going on here, and the other half of this is something that Haley Jacob didn't explore in her book. I mean, it was—it's already quite a long book. How could you do everything in one? But for sure. me, the big theme of Romans eight, as I've said before, is about the temple. And if you say to a first-century Jew, "What is the hope of glory?" They would say the hope is that the glory of God will return. Yahweh will return to Zion. His glory will come and will re-inhabit the temple. And Paul says, yes, that's what's gone on in Jesus. And that's what's going on in the spirit. Now, when you put those two ideas together, you get that it's this explosive mix. On the one hand, God is coming back in glory to make his dwelling with us. What does that look like? It looks like the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within the Messiah's followers and make them according to his image. But when that happens, here's the second half, they are thereby conformed to the image of the Son. They become genuine human beings. Do you see the mm -hmm. point? When God reveals himself fully, what you see is a living, breathing, praying, celebrating human being. Old Irenaeus at the end of the second century was exactly right. The glory of God is a living human being and the life of humans is the glory of God. Um, mm. We have often forgotten that. We thought God is over there, humans are over there. And OK, Jesus was a one off because he was God and man. But we don't quite understand that. No, heaven and earth were made for one another. God made humans in his own image in order to become human himself and in order by the spirit to indwell and reanimate humans. So the glory of God returning to Zion and the glory of humans made in God's image, the two come rushing together. Those he justified, them he also glorified. One footnote, that line at the end of Romans 8.30, which many have seen as part of a chain of predestination theology, that's not how it works. It's a reference back to Isaiah 45, where it's the servant vocation, the vocation of the servant to reveal God's glory to the world. This passage is about vocation, not about salvation. And if only, and the larger passage is about salvation, of course, but this particular bit is about who we are called to be, to be glorified already as genuine human beings. Oh my, there's so much to explore there. Most of us have hardly begun. Mm -hmm. I love how excited you get about this. <laughs> 
for those who are just listening, you could just see it on uh, Dr. Wright's face as he's talking about this. Um, so we have this uh, vocation as image bearers. This is Genesis 1 being fulfilled. We are discarding God's good creation. We are fulfilling. We are seeing the fulfillment of that in the work of Jesus, the inheritance uh, that we have, the fortes, we have the spirit inside of us as a deposit showing this is where the story is going. But in the midst of that, we also experience groaning, like you just said, Tom, that there is this groaning that we experience. For uh, Paul's maybe original audience, if this is a few years before uh, the great fire that Nero blamed on Christians in 64, is that sound about right? Uh, a few years after Paul writes this, where Christians are already starting to feel um, the the consequence uh, or the, the heat of this oppression, which will be fulfilled when Nero says, hey, this is all the Christians' fault, that's why there's a fire. Maybe that's probably the groaning that they're experiencing. Do you think it's fair for us to read our own groanings into that? Like the struggles that we experience, we're not under persecution for most of us, uh, especially in the West, for our Christian beliefs. How do we see our own groanings in this text? Yes, I think it's absolutely right that we should. Um, Paul says in one of the pastoral letters, all those who want to follow Messiah Jesus will experience suffering of some sort. Now, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm in my mid-70s. I've never been persecuted for my faith. I've been laughed at. I've had people say rude things about me from time to time. But by the time you get to my age, it's kind of okay. That's going to happen. Not a big deal. Nobody's ever spat at me or, or beat me up because I'm a Christian. But there are many people around the world, some of whom I know, who have had that or near equipment. And there are many who are suffering that right now, obviously. So that in Paul's world, and it's interesting, in, among Paul's own churches, many of them are suffering. In Philippi, they're suffering. In Thessalonica, they're suffering. Um, in Rome, they're certainly facing suffering, as you say. It was, Paul, I reckon, could see it coming over the horizon, even if it hadn't fully begun yet, though I suspect it was already starting up in Rome although the Christian church in Rome was very small when Paul was writing to them. But the church in Corinth, interestingly, the church in Corinth isn't suffering, which is why they look down on Paul, because he's a bit of a jailbird and he's getting shipwrecked and he's being beaten mm -hmm. up. And they think Paul has obviously fallen out of God's favor, whereas we're doing all right. And that is because there's been a legal decision in Corinth, you see it in Acts 18, that being a Christian is simply like being a Jew. It's a different way of being a Jew. And the Jews are allowed to practice their own religion. So we're not going to make a fuss about those Christians. And immediately, any threat of persecution is gone. And immediately, the Corinthian church gets into all kinds of trouble. They are soft on morality. They are fuzzy about the resurrection. They are riven by factionalism. The rich and the poor are in a divide etc, etc, etc. And Paul suffers because of that. So, so it, it's a complicated issue already in the New Testament. But you see, there's two things then growing, going on with the groaning. One is that the groaning is a direct verbal echo of the children of Israel in Egypt, groaning in slavery. And God hears that and comes to rescue them. You'll notice that in Romans 8, 25, 6, 7, when the church is groaning, Paul says, he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit is interceding for God's people according to God's will. That is like the children of Israel in Egypt groaning. That's one of the things that's going on, the echo of, of Exodus. But the, the other thing is this anticipation that at any given moment, the church as a whole will be suffering persecution. And the world as a whole is going through labor pains. You know, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and terrible things happening. And Paul says the church is right there in the middle of it. The church isn't spared 
prepared from that. So it's about the church being at the place where the world is in pain, just like Jesus himself came to the place where the world was in pain. What could be more emblematic of that than the king of the Jews dying on a cross outside his own capital city at the hands of brutal empire? Uh, and, And I see the theology of the cross standing right over that whole passage. And so we are called to stay at that place and groan in prayer, knowing that, according to 828, God uses that prayer, the prayer of those who thereby love God, God uses that prayer as part of the means of bringing about new creation. Mm -hmm. And that gives us the hope and the confidence that nothing shall separate us from the love of God, because we know what has been revealed in Jesus. We have the experience of the Spirit. We have this picture of where this is going, that we don't give in to despair because we know that nothing is going to separate us. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And and we, we know, Paul says, I am persuaded, uh, which is an interesting way of putting it. Um, it it's, it's as though again and again, he worries, can I really believe this? And he thinks round the loop again. Teaching yourself to think round that loop is in the power of the Spirit, of course, is part of the deal. Learning to say, no, I'm not going to be blown off course by all these terrible things that are happening. I am persuaded and I'm going to stand firm on that. Like many big moral decisions that people make and many big vocational decisions that people make. And having made them, I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to see it through. It may be tough, but I'm not going to go running back. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing. I'm persuaded that none of these things, nor any other creature. I love that. It's as though Paul is saying, we belong to the creator. So no other creature, our fellow creatures, can stand in the way of our relationship with our creator who loves us. Mm, that's beautiful. And so we have this this hope, this confidence in the redemption of all things, that God is restoring God's created world, that it's not about earth being departed, us floating up to heaven, but it's about the new heavens and new earth, that yeah. there is a new Jerusalem that is coming here. Yeah. And I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but I'm still going to ask this because, you know, I just have to. Um, If we're not thinking that we depart earth, but we see heaven coming to earth, can we talk about aliens for just one second? Um, Because you were going with this, but uh, feel feel free. I know nothing about aliens. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't planning on it, but I just felt compelled that we have to go there. Um, Partly because just like there's all these things that people are saying there's aliens now, there's other life forms that, you know, whatever, you know, the government says we've known this for decades and then we just moved on like it was no big deal. We have all these pilots saying we see things flying in the air. We found something in Mexico, which appears to be non-human life form that's been around for hundreds of years. If we've lived in a world and a, a perspective that there's heaven, there's earth and there's nothing else. If there are other life forms, how does this eschatology make space? Like if does that, have any idea or connection to this or are they just on their own like what are your thoughts on that i i don't particularly have an opinion on aliens i i have to say by the way um i noticed when i came in through uh, jfk in new york the other day that they've changed the sign it used to be um u.s citizens here aliens there and mm-hmm. the, the rest of us were all designated aliens which i always aliens, yeah. found a bit funny but they have now changed it perhaps because they're worried about the things you're talking about um, <laughs> again 
again, isn't it interesting? America seems much more worried about these things than the rest of the world is. Um, I don't think people in Europe are, are worried about little green men and about uh, funny things happening. <laughs> these these are uh, intra-American sort of conspiracy theories and so on. It may well be. Uh, I have no reason to suppose that there are not and could not be other life forms elsewhere in the cosmos. It's perfectly mm -hmm. possible as far as I'm concerned, just like it's perfectly reasonable to suppose that there were dinosaurs and pterodactyls and so on roaming the earth um, millennia ago, long before we hominids turned up. Um, and that, that doesn't bother me. Will they be in the new creation? I think they probably will. Um, who knows what life will be like in God's new creation? It'll be a riot of color and, and animality and, and physicality and celebration and a great multitude that no one can number all singing the praises of God and the Lamb. And why shouldn't there be all kinds of creatures part of that as well? Insofar as we have any concern for or responsibility for them, it will be part of this same thing. The cosmos as a whole is groaning in creation. We mm -hmm. take the pain that we are suffering. And as I've often had to say to my students, when you're preaching, every time you look down on a congregation, these half-smiling faces, every face is masking some secret sorrow of some sort somewhere. Goodness knows what or why, but they are. And we are all in this together, sometimes vividly and horribly, sometimes much more quietly and privately. But in the middle of that, our calling is simply to be in prayer for God's whole creation and praying that God's kingdom will come and God will bring it all together. As in Ephesians 1, God's plan is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in the Messiah. That, so whether there be aliens of one sort or another or not, it doesn't affect the big prayer that we ought always to be praying. Mm -hmm. So in five years, let's say we actually have contact with an alien there's communication, you know, we set up like this, you know, interplanet sort of dialogue. Will you feel the need to add a new chapter to Surprise by Hope? Because you wrote a book on the pandemic very quickly. You had it out there. It's very helpful. I used it in my own preaching in my church. Um, but if you do, I just feel like we'll, I'll do the first interview with you to talk about the new edition of Surprise by Hope, Alien Edition. It's funny because... Often when people do podcasts with me, I've heard all the questions before. Nobody has ever asked me that question before. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be surprised. I called that book Surprised by Hope. And so um, God can do whatever God can do. And we mm. will be ready. Uh, of course, at my age, I ought to be giving up and going and playing golf rather than writing more books. But there are one or two things I still want to say. Okay. Well, I hope you keep saying them. And I'll take that last comment as a statement that I'm the only person who would uh, ask such a ridiculous question about uh, aliens to you. And I'm not embarrassed about that. And uh, thank you for playing the game with me. That's very kind of you. And uh, again, uh, the new book, congratulations on it. I'm excited. Uh, I think what I'm going to do to start the episode, I'm going to read it, read the entire Romans 8 chapter, just so that my listeners kind of have that afresh. And so we've talked about a bunch in there. Uh, your book on the, the heart of Romans, which uh, it's a great resource. It's just over chapter. Chapter eight, I think people will find it very helpful. And uh, I, I just want to say it, it's not lost in me 
the generosity of time that you extend to me and the multiple times that you've made time and space for me. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, if someone would have told me that you would not only talk to me, but you'd respond to my emails, uh, I wouldn't have believed it uh, because, you know, you're such an influential part of my, my faith journey and my understanding of scripture. And so, again, I just want to say thank you for the time, Tom, and congrats on the new book. Thank you very much indeed. It's very generous of you. I, I'm, it's funny because I'm a natural extrovert. I'm a people person. Um, in retirement, it's quite odd because I don't have classes of students in front of me all the time. And my wife has heard most of my jokes more than once. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so it's actually quite fun to chat to people who are uh, bright young minds eager to ask questions. So thank you very much. It's, it's always mm. a treat to talk to you. And thank you for referring to me as young still. I appreciate that. My <laughs> One of my daughters, my youngest daughter, who's who's nine, asked me the other day on a walk. She said, Dad, when you were a kid, do they have cars? And uh, so I don't feel young all the time. But Wonderful. for you to say that is very nice. Wonderful. Um, well, uh, I have to say my grandchildren range from an 18 year old who we visited this last weekend um, down yeah. to a two year old. So um, uh, I, I am a long way, a long way past your age. But it's it's fine. We are who we are. Mm-hmm. We are. All right. Well, Tom, well, thanks again. I appreciate it. And uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye.